You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of life. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett. And you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Doug Beal. Doug is an American volleyball player, coach, and former CEO of USA Volleyball. As a player, he was a five-time All-American at Ohio State University, and then from 1970 to 1976, played over 200 games for the USA Volleyball Team. He became coach of the USA Men's Volleyball Team in 1977 and eventually led the team to a gold medal at the 1984 Olympics. He also coached the Gonzaga team in Italy and led them to the World Club Championship in 1991. In 2005, he became CEO of USA Volleyball and served in that role until his retirement in 2017. Doug was inducted into the Volleyball Hall of Fame in 1989 and was USA Volleyball's first recipient of the All-Time Great Coach Award in 1995. Doug is a leader with a deep sense of humility and an equally impressive ability to connect a far-reaching vision with the critical steps needed to progress it today. He has been part of a lineage of coaches that have developed USA Volleyball into the powerhouse it is today, 
And in this reflective and broad interview, some of the key parts that resonated with me were the wonderful poem he shares from the late 1800s to illustrate his view on setting a vision. How, in a good team culture, there is a role for everyone. The similarities he has found in being a head coach and CEO and wanting to leave a legacy of having influenced people in a positive way and demonstrating the value and joy of sport in your life. This was a terrific conversation with an inspiring human being and I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And now, please enjoy our interview with Doug Beale. The Great Coaches Podcast. Doug Beale, good evening, my time. Good morning, your time. And welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. It's exciting and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, I am as well, Doug, and perhaps something really simple to get us going. Could you tell us where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far today? I'm in Colorado Springs. I've been living here almost 30 years. My family and I moved here because of a coaching responsibility. I'm sure you know the overall background. So I've coached our men's USA team for quite a while on and off. And for a while, we trained here in the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And then I stayed on after I finished coaching and was the CEO of USA Volleyball for about 13 years. And the organization is is here, has been here for a long time before I started uh, CEO and remains here largely because the Olympic Paralympic Committee is headquartered here in Colorado Springs. It's a beautiful place. We love it. Our kids grew up here. We love the, the outdoor lifestyle, I think. It's a gorgeous place to live and play and go skiing and biking and all those kind of fun outdoor activities. Well, as I sit here listening to you on a dark but hot night in Bucharest, I'm very jealous. Doug, we're going to get into your journey. We're going to talk about the coaching. We're going to talk about the gold medal. We're going to talk about your role as the CEO and how you've built that organization. But I'd really yeah. like to start by talking about the great coaches that you've had firsthand experience with. Yuri Cheskanov, Jim McLaughlin, Carl McGowan, Hugh McCutcheon, the list goes pretty much on and on. It's a who's who of anyone who's ever been a great coach on the world stage in volleyball. But from this experience that you've had up close with these great coaches, I'd like to start by asking you, what is it you think they do differently that sets them apart? Well, we could probably spend pretty much the entire hour just talking about that. I think, first of all, I've been extraordinarily fortunate to have the relationships that I've had with a series of really remarkable people and remarkable coaches. And I'm positive that I've been significantly influenced by each one of them and a whole bunch that weren't named. Most people wouldn't have heard of that were really early in my career and perhaps even the most impactful physical educators and coaches on clubs that lots of us started with, one of whom is still alive and I'm very close to still to this day and probably has had as much influence on me as my own father. So I think, gosh, what do they have in common? A really impactful coach once told me that the starting point to be good is some degree of self-confidence. 
You have to know yourself. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe you can lead this group or that you have something to offer to this group. And it's not arrogance. It's not this belief that I'm always right, but it is a belief that I can find a way to lead the group or respond to uh, the needs of the group. I think you'll find as we talk today that I spend most of my time talking about a group. And so I'm much more focused on and have experience in team sports versus individual sports. I think there are some pretty significant differences. I think the great coaches are eager to learn. They aren't just lifelong learners. I think that's an easy answer. They're eager to learn. They reach out to peers and other people that they find information about or that somebody introduces them to. They have developed a network that is important to them as people. And it's much more than just how these individuals help me be better solving a problem or relating to a group or knowing myself. It's how do they make me a better person? How do they make me more aware of my failings, my limitations, and my strengths? And I think they become a big part of that. I would be really surprised, Paul, if you didn't hear from lots of the people you've interviewed that this core group of people that coaches relate to are the most impactful people in their life, equal to or or perhaps even more important than their parents or their siblings. And we spend more time with them as life goes on. I start with this self-confidence issue, then I start with this eagerness to expand my world. How can I benefit by getting to know Yuri Chesnikov or uh, Slava Platonov or Carl McGowan or Jim Coleman or so many people, John Kessel, an interesting guy who's never really coached at a very high level and maybe is one of the most impactful people that I know in coaching. And I could throw out names forever here. You've mentioned a bunch more. It's an important part of who you are as a coach. And I think one of the things that has been special and unique in the United States, in the international volleyball culture that has grown up in the United States, is the stream of continuity of coaches and how we've sort of built on top of what this person accomplished. Jim Coleman, Carl McGowan, me, Marv Dunphy, Hugh McCutcheon, Al Knight, now John Sparaw, Terry Laskevich, Mick Haley, Ari Selinger. And lots of us are really close still to this day and talk and interact a lot. I've had many other coaches in other countries tell me that's unique. And it's been a real strength here in this country. And it has allowed us right through to Karch Karai right now, who's maybe going to be the best coach of all. And we applaud that. We love it. We support it. It's an interesting culture that has grown up here in the United States, I think. Doug, you went to the World Championships back in 1970. and It was in Bulgaria, just down the road from where I am today. Yeah, not far from you. And I understand that it was there that you first started writing things down that you were learning by watching great teams play. And and, and I've heard you reference the Czechoslovakian team, which was very good at the time. Has this practice of observation and reflection stayed with you as a leader? Absolutely. I can't remember when I started making notes and keeping notebooks of observations and 
strategies and goals in my life and plans, but I've been doing it long before 1970 even. I can remember in high school sitting in class and I was so taken with volleyball, which wasn't a very organized, structured sport at that time, putting lineups together and things that we have to do with our little club team that was really not a very structured group with a very organized coaching situation. I'm a writer. I write things down. I make lists. I have most of them. I've kept them. When I left uh, and retired as CEO at USA Volleyball, I had boxes of material that I brought home. And then there were boxes here at home that I hadn't looked at in, in years. And I took almost a year and a half, maybe two years to go through all those. Anyway, I have almost all those notebooks. And, and I'll occasionally go down into the basement of our house and reread them. And it's a, just a fascinating process for me to look at how I've changed and what was a priority 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40, unfortunately longer ago than I, I wish it was. It's been a big part of how I've evolved as a coach to share that and to ask people I've worked with to respond to things I've written to them here are my objectives, or here's my list of things we do well, or here's the things that I think we don't do well. Tell me what you think. Which ones can we change? Which ones can we make better quickly or long-term? So yeah, it's, it's something I've just always done that. And the Czechs were a wonderful team at the time. We were in a, a small city in Bulgaria, the first pool. I think it was called Yambol. Uh, Bulgaria. And gosh, we, we snuck into practices and two or three of us players and the level that they were playing at relative to the level of our team at that time. So as you said, it was 1970 was just, I don't know, hit us like a brick wall. How do we compete with this? We have so many things that we have to be better at. And how do we do that? And look at how they train and look at the drills they're doing and look at the exercises and how they're spending their time. And we're not doing much of this. There must be something we have to change because they were a world-class team at the time and we were clearly not. Let's talk about that brick wall because 14 years later, your playing career is finished. You play over 200 games for the national team and you become the coach. And in 1984, the team famously win the gold medal. There's a TV movie and there's a book about the experience. And it was very audacious at the time, given where you were ranked in the world. But I wanted to ask you about this whole idea of audacious goals, because it seems to me like through your career, you've actually set many of them. And I wanted to ask you through the lens of, is it potentially distracting when you set such a big goal for the team to focus on? And there are still so many steps along the way to get there. Yes, it is. I think sometimes distracting and probably not the smartest approach. I'm not one of these individuals that looks back on things I've done or haven't done or process and go, I wouldn't change a thing. I'm not one of those. I would probably change lots of things. It's always struck me as a little bit arrogant for people to say, oh, everything I did or I can explain it or I wouldn't change a thing. So first of all, I believe in big picture thinking. I think that's a part of leadership, I think. You have to sort of set some a little bit pie in the sky objectives. You have to convince people that you can do more than they think, perhaps, or that some of the individuals think. You have to be able to just see the bigger world, see the bigger picture. I think that's a big part of, of leadership. I have a wonderful quote that I love. So I'm going to take a second and just tell you this quote. And it's from the late 1800s, which is interesting. And this is a guy who said, 
make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Make big plans, aim high and hope and work. It just really resonates with me. And the guy who said that, his name was Daniel Burnham, and he organized and was responsible for the World's Fair in Chicago back in 1893. I think his profession was architect or maybe even a landscape architect. It so resonates. We can do small things which lead to big things, but we have to somehow have this big vision, this big picture of where we want to go. And to me, it's not a problem to say we want to win a gold medal. We want to be world champions. The issue is doing way beyond with your group. How do we achieve that? What are the steps that allow us to say that? Here we are today, down here someplace. Here we want to be you know, a year from now, five years from now, up here. So there's a process that's involved, and that's really the most important thing. Setting the goal is easy. Saying, I want to win a gold medal. I want to be world champion. I want to win my league. I want to whatever. Convincing your players, convincing the group, there's a process that allows you to achieve that. And also understanding sometimes we could run out of time. We might be on this path, and the path is longer than the moment when that goal was available to us. And so you might fail. You might fail. And I think that's part of being a great leader. You have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to miss that mark. And it simply means we ran out of time. We didn't adjust our intermediate steps effectively enough. Maybe I wasn't good enough to teach you or to manage the process, or I think all those things are okay. And, you know, the effort, the process is probably more valuable than I achieved that goal. And I don't know, sometimes we achieve this goal and we throw our hands up and go, yeah, what else is there to do? I'm done. You know, my life has peaked. I'm 30 years old or I'm 40 years old or something. That would be the saddest part, I think. It never scared me or it never intimidated me to say, hey, this is a pretty audacious goal because there has to be a process. And if you can't create the process, then the goal is meaningless anyway. And so it doesn't have much resonance and it's not, you're not going to connect with your group. That to me is, is just part of the issue here. Well, Doug, I want to talk to you about missing the mark, but first I want to talk about sure. hitting the mark because you win the gold medal and the team just go on an amazing run. And a lot of it is on the back of some innovation that you bring in. I'm not a deep volleyball expert, but I understand there is innovation in the way the teams attacked and defended and passed. And you talked about the roles that players undertook in that team. And they go on this run and they win the Triple Crown, the Olympic gold medal, the World Cup medal, and the World Championships. And just building on what you were saying then about the long-term plan, the pie in the sky, I'm wondering what this experience and the many others you've had over your career have taught you about the balance between this strategy, this big picture thinking and the tactical execution of today? I've never been able to specifically articulate the difference between strategy and tactics as well as I think some other people do. So I'm talking from the perspective that strategy is a bigger picture issue and tech are the unique ways that we are implementing some broader strategy. A couple things occur to me. There are two really challenging objectives. One is to reach some high high goal to change the dynamic of the group that you start with, the team. And the second one is to maintain that level over some period of time. I think most coaches would say great teams are great over time and that lots of teams that are not great 
have risen up and won a competition or have a short period of time when they're really good. And frankly, in today's world, I think with, I guess, the movement of players and the amount of money and resources that are available, it's even harder to maintain a group to achieve at a high level over time. And we don't see it very often. Maybe we've never seen it very often. And so it's unique. And that the, the team that, that we started with really was probably the best team in the world from sometime in late 1983 through 89, something like that, because it won a second gold medal. And probably with one or two very small modifications, would have won a third straight in 92. We did some nice things to maintain in an evolving world milieu, I guess, a core group of players, a commitment to the team objectives to be able to fulfill the strategy. And the tactics, I guess, were how do we adapt to an ever-changing environment? Players want flexibility. Players come and go. There are injuries. There are other outside influences that distract. You don't have as much control over the life of players as we did. One of the big examples I use regularly is one of the years in leading up to 84, we played more than 100 international matches. Nobody even comes close to that in today's world. There are too many competing opportunities. And we probably trained over 10,000 hours that year. Again, nobody can do that right now. And I'm not sure it, it was ever even good back then. But to make that leap, from where we were as a team and where the sport was and where the mentality of the players were, the expectations to get to this higher level, the strategy had to be implementing these tactics. We had to make a lot of change, I think. And I still believe that. And I think, I honestly think most of the players even believe it now and maybe begrudgingly at the time. What's that famous phrase? The definition of insanity is to keep doing the same things that fail over and over. So change when you have this big goal, these big strategies, to me is just, of course, we have to change. We have to rethink everything. And part of that was how we trained, how many hours we put in, how many matches we played, and how we played the game. You know, at the time that I was a young coach and starting out, the Soviet Union, now Russia, was really a dominant team. And their culture in the sport far exceeded ours. And so we had to figure a new way. The Japanese were really a powerhouse at the time. A lot of the other European, Eastern European at the time, Cuba was enormously good. And they were doing things collectively very differently than we did. And so, I don't know, we just had to say we're Americans. There are things embedded in our culture and our society that allow us to do some things. And there's a whole bunch of things that we can't do that don't work in our society and our culture. So how do we get really good? How do we make changes? We rethought the game I think, in some pretty interesting and creative ways that allowed us to be good. And it influenced the sport, I think, in a really positive way, which I'm pleased about, and allowed this team to be good because other teams tried to do what we did. But it, it's really hard to do that. We didn't try to do things like the Japanese, like the Soviets, like the Bulgarians, like the Cubans. We tried to do things differently. And again, you, you have to risk falling on your face and looking foolish. And doesn't always work, but it sure did for those years. And I think it's gone on to make 
The U.S. is an anomaly. We're a world volleyball power without a professional league. What we do have is a really robust NCAA collegiate environment that for some years, quite a few, wasn't recognized by the rest of the world as much as it was in this country. It's a remarkable alternative to the professional leagues that exist all around the world uh, today. And we're starting to get some professional volleyball, especially on the women's side, a little bit on the men's side. And I think there's every reason to believe that the U.S. is going to continue to dominate in men and women's international volleyball and even beach, I think, in significant part because of our collegiate environment that feeds downward into clubs and high school, etc., and and is pretty has proven to be pretty successful and maybe in some ways more impactful than the professional model that the rest of the world sort of uses with a few other exceptions. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'd like to talk to you in a minute, actually, about the success you had when you moved into the CEO role in cross beach, para, and uh, sure. floor volleyball. But maybe just one more question around your coaching style, if I could, because there's a quote I found from you, and it, part of it caught my attention, and I'll, I'll read it to you before I ask the question. You say, I believe less is more. I don't think coaches should spend a whole lot of time talking to try to convince their players how smart they are. I think you convince them by what you do and how you interact with people, largely one-on-one. It was the last part that caught my eye, and I wanted to ask you, why is this one-on-one concept so important to you when dealing with a team and trying to improve their dynamics? Mostly what I'm talking about there is that it's very challenging for a coach to relate, the head coach to relate to every individual the same way, successfully make that connection. It's much easier if you're willing to acknowledge that some of your players are going to have a better connection to an assistant coach or several, or maybe the team trainer, or maybe the team manager, or maybe the stat person, or maybe any number of people that you may have around the team, maybe some administrator. And I don't think it's absolutely essential for every player on the team to feel that they have this direct connection to the head coach. I think coaches do tend to, especially young coaches, to want to impress their team with what they know. And I'm in charge. I'm the leader. And the most effective way to change 
motor behavior is to put players in a position with the exercises that you're doing in practice and giving them appropriate feedback without stopping the drill, getting everybody to come together, which you see commonly, and sort of pontificating to the team. And I see it a lot when I visit gyms or training situations. And the older I get and the more I see, the more I'm impressed with those coaches who can keep the training going, provide effective feedback with minimal stoppages of action. And certainly, we're not talking about two or three or four hours of nonstop action. That's pretty debilitating. There's all kinds of stoppages. The game itself provides all kinds of stoppages. And But we don't have to spend a huge amount of time convincing players how smart we are. The, the one-on-one interactions during a drill, during an exercise, calling attention to decision-making and what creates a volleyball or a sport IQ is hugely impactful. And I'm talking about a broad generalization here that is going to change if you're dealing with 10-year-olds versus 16-year-olds versus 25-year-olds. And certainly the level of experience and the environment that you're coaching in makes, there's not one size that fits all. But the coach doesn't have to be the king. The coach doesn't have to be the the all-powerful Wizard of Oz, I guess. The coach has to worry about the entire environment. We coach people. They're all different. One size doesn't fit all. A huge part of being successful, I think, is understanding how to treat individuals uniquely within the environment. Now we call it the culture that I've created in my world. And if that culture is a good one, whatever that whatever that means, good is, is a hard definition here. It's going to have a role for every person, the staff included. And sometimes the players are going to relate to the assistant coach or the manager, all people I've mentioned, much better than the head coach. And that's that could be a personality issue. That could be a background issue. That could be any number of things that influence how you and I might relate. I think it's important for the coach to know their strengths, but it's even more important for the coach to know where they need assistance to smooth out how they affect every individual. And it's not always perfect. It's a hard question. It's an interesting question to try to to deal with. I just, the best interactions are trying to figure out how do I make the player make the best decision, the right decision within my understanding of what the game, how the game should look for me. Let me follow it up with maybe a question that's a little bit easier then. (laughs) That was a tough one. 200 games as a player, gold medals as a coach, and then there's a third act. And the third act sees you as the CEO of USA Volleyball. And what's amazing is more success follows. This time, not just in volleyball, but in beach volleyball. And I believe it's called sitting or para volleyball as well. All three areas are now, as you rightly pointed out, areas where the USA wins multiple medals. What's the key differences between being a head coach and a CEO? I'm not sure there is a lot of difference, honestly. There's a certain side to being a CEO where you you have to know governance and finances and operations and compliance issues, et cetera, all of which 
can be gained externally. I guess I would say there's much more commonality than there is differences. In its simplest form, or the simplest way to answer it is, find really good people, empower those people, and make sure that their vision and their ultimate objectives are aligned with yours, or that you have convinced them your objectives are their objectives. And then support them, but leave them alone and find good people, identify their role, communicate that role, and then encourage them to take that and and run as far as they could. Challenge me to rein you in. Challenge me to say, oh, we don't have the money for that, or I don't know how we're going to get that, something like that. And I think we did pretty well. I'm I say this to a lot of people, you're by far not the first one. I was a pretty good player. So I played on the U.S. national team. I was by no means the star of the team or a remarkable player in the world, but I was a pretty good player. And I, I guess I always saw my role in the sport sort of continuing, evolving. So I was a pretty good player. I think I was a better coach than I was a player, not just because we won a gold medal, but I, but because I think we changed how we did things. I helped that happen. And because the people after me did better, I've always thought that was a a really important marker. Gosh, if I'm the peak, that's a problem. I haven't left things in a good situation. So I was a pretty good player, a better coach. I think I was an even better administrator because I have the ability to see the big picture or I I strive hard for that. And I empower people or, or I believe I've empowered people. And I've made the the we much more important than the I. One of the things I used to talk about in staff meetings is it's another quote or anybody ever said this, but it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. I really believe that. I think it's really important. And in today's world, much more than 30 or 40 years ago, that's a hard thing for coaches to deal with because the individual behavior has become so much more demonstrative in sports. You see so much more, I guess I want to call it a little bit showboating. I guess it's more demonstrative behavior. People, individual players want to call attention to themselves. They scream and yell, raise their hand. If you look at almost any sport 30, 40 years ago, you see very little of that, very little demonstrative behavior. So it's much more part of our culture to draw attention to myself. And so that becomes more of a challenge. That's a challenge for the coaches. It's a challenge for the officials, referees, umpires, whatever. There's a lot more sort of in-your-face kind of behavior. One of the other things we used to talk about to the team is define for me what it means to be a great competitor. What does it mean to be a great competitor? It's not an easy question. And everybody will talk about, I work hard and I I achieve great and I want to be good. One of the ways to be a a great competitor is to respect your opponent and respect the sport, respect the environment. And there are lots of ways to do that. But I think understanding that maybe that's minimally you you should do that. I respect myself, certainly, but I respect my opponent and I respect the sport. I think, I hope I created an environment where I respected the organization, USA Volleyball, I respected the Olympic world, and we wanted to create programs that attracted people to want to experience what volleyball has to offer, sitting, beach, now even snow, whatever, indoor, of course. 
I wanted everybody to be winners. I wanted every staff person to be a winner. So it, we just tried to be good in, in all the programs we're, we were involved with. Marv Dumphy said his vision, work ethic, creativity, and courage earned respect from every aspect and every level of sport. It's a great quote. Such a powerful quote and a lovely thing for someone to say about you. And you've worked across yeah, it's, so it's beyond lovely, yeah. You've worked across so many layers of the game over so many years, from the bottom all the way to the top. How do you maintain your energy as a leader? I've been passionate about volleyball since I got introduced to the sport when I was 10 years old in the fourth grade. I wish I could give you a great answer as to why. Something about the sport resonated with me. I never was tired of playing. It just, um, yeah, something clicked, (laughs) something mystical, (laughs) maybe. I consider Marv just one of the wonderful coaches in the world, an incredible career at the national team level probably the most remarkable career. I I don't know. I think in the relatively short time he coached the national team for four years, I don't know that he lost a tournament. I think he took the team that we developed and made it better and better and better. And of course, at Pepperdine, just terrific. So he's he's one of those people that I alluded to earlier in, in a terrific line. And you hear this a lot. I think he's a better human being than he ever was a coach. So anyway, it's it's beyond special that he would say things like that. So he, he's a great, great friend. I think uh, we have this wonderful, wonderful culture in, the, in this country that I feel I've contributed to and, and feel a great part of uh, that has been important for us. And I think there's so many things about volleyball that are even specially suited to today's world. There's this power there's this finesse, there's this teamwork, there's the, the, the sort of the non-physical, direct physical confrontation. It's a game that is easy to understand. You're trying to get the ball back and forth over the net. I think it has so many elements. I love the International Federation's efforts to try to make it the premier family sport in the world. I, I think there's an opportunity there that we love about volleyball. It, it's great for the eight or nine or 10 year old. It's great for the 16 or 18 year old. It's great for the parents, the adults. I love the fact that there's this mama-san volleyball in Japan and mama net volleyball in Israel and pockets around the world where the sport resonates uh, in, in a social environment. So I... I don't know. I, I'm always really interested in, in seeing new ventures for the sport, new ways to promote it. And and certainly I want it to be more, I guess, commercially viable around the world. I'd love to see bigger crowds and more television exposure. Probably every sport wants the same thing in this ever-increasing sort of sports entertainment world. But I think volleyball has something really special. My passion is easy. I love seeing uh, the way it's grown. I'm not sure any sport has grown more dramatically than volleyball over the last 30 or 40 years. I'm going to ask this last question anyway. You, I think you've already alluded <laughs> to the answer, but I want to ask it directly and put you on the spot. Sure. A tremendous career, player, coach, administrator, touched people all over the world and created growth in a sport, which is now, as you rightly say, played in every corner all around this wonderful globe. But what's the legacy that you hope you've left behind as a leader? I guess I I hope that I'm a part of this stream that has made the sport better, that has influenced people in a positive way, that has demonstrated the value 
certainly of volleyball as a sport, but just sport broadly. I, I think there are so many wonderful things about sport. And it isn't it isn't the winning and losing to me. And, and I guess team sports is even more, even even more resonates for me. The joy of working together, the joy of achieving something collectively, the joy of understanding your role and how it fits into a bigger picture, the joy of compromise, not maybe playing as big a role as you might be able to play because a slightly different or smaller role allows the team to achieve more. Gosh, if I've transmitted any of those things, I'm pleased with what I've done. I'm, I'm really comfortable with what I've done in the sport and what impact I, I may have had. And I feel pretty good about that. And I just, I love where the sport is going. I think volleyball is special. I'm just grateful as I can be to have played uh, uh, whatever role I've played. It's been terrific for me. And I'm retired. And I'm retired. So I'm, I'm okay with that too. Doug, it's been great chatting to you tonight. I appreciate you spending an hour with us talking about leadership and coaching. It's been a, a real masterclass and I wish you all the best for whatever challenges lay ahead. This was great. Thanks Thank very you. much. Hi, everyone. It's Mike here. And you've been listening to the great coach, Doug Beal. Doug was a great interview guest. And some of the key things he said that resonated with me were how the starting point to being a good coach is to have some degree of self-confidence. How it is that the continuity of coaching over the last 40 plus years has helped the USA become a powerhouse in all forms of volleyball. His self-reflection practices and how he writes things down. And the role that innovation played in helping him to create a playing style that propelled the team to the top of the world rankings. Doug is a legend in the world of volleyball, and we hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Warwick Can, who, after listening to our Micro Bowl episode, said, highly recommended to coaches of any sport. Thank you, Warwick. The interaction with people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And all the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.